Good morning again, everyone. Would you stand for the reading of our scripture this morning? We will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, but that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and from from for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as real as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to, uh, eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. She just tried to keep my Bible I'm fixing to preach out of. That would have been bad. Uh, well, in case you don't know, I'm, I'm Ryan. I'm the student minister. Our pastor is away visiting family for uh, Thanksgiving this week, and so uh, he, he is not with us, but uh, I'm uh, overjoyed to be opening the word with you and sharing uh, what is going on here in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. Uh, now, the situation in 1 Corinthians has been a little bit... Uh, chaotic, a little bit uh, crazy, but Paul is uh, in this section going to change his attention to something else. Now, who in here is like a Cincinnati transplant? Any like, I was not born here, I was not raised here. Okay, so you may be able to, you may be able to empathize with this a little bit. When I first moved here, I had this like nervousness every time someone wanted to take me out to eat. It was very scary for me. Because they would always want to suggest one of two things. You know it! Skyline or Gold Star. And let me tell you, see, some of you are already fighting, like, over which one's better. Like, go to Skyline. But see, I was in Louisville, and my dad, actually, there's a, there's a Skyline in Louisville, and my dad wanted to go to Skyline. And we went, that was the first time I ate Skyline. That is the final time <laughs> I will ever eat Skyline. I got some applause from people. But guess what? If you're applauding for Gold Star, I won't eat Gold Star. I'll eat a Gold Star burger. But the Cincinnati chili situation is out of control. Like, that is, I don't know, I'm not trying to be offensive, but that is not chili. 
It's not chilly. And every, but every time people would say, I'd say, nah, I'm not really into Gold Star. I'm not really into Skyline. They'd be like, but Ryan, you're a Cincinnatian now. You've got to like Skyline. You've got to like Gold Star. You've got to do it. It's part, it's part of our culture. It's part of our heritage. And I was just like, I can't do it. I'm sorry. We'll just have to agree to disagree on this situation. And some of you hear that phrase, agree to disagree, even about Skyline Chili, and think that's not an option. Agreeing to disagree is not actually an option. And that's a hard concept for me. I don't like to agree to disagree. I like to disagree or agree. That's the, those are my options. right? I want to know what's right. I want to know what the truth is. I want to go poll the world, like have some Texas chili and have some Cincinnati chili, and which one's better. I want to know what's right. <laughs> Amen. But when we come to the more important topics in our life than Skyline or Gold Star or Texas Chili, when we come to what does it mean to raise a family? What does it mean to attend a church or worship God? Or what does it mean to sin or not sin? We don't want to play in these gray areas. We don't want to agree to disagree. It's confusing. Walking in gray areas is, is challenging, and it can cause division, and it can cause strife in the church. And that is the case in the church in Corinth that we come to in chapter 8. In this text, in this chapter, Paul is attempting to answer one question. There's one question, and it, here it is. What happens when well-intentioned Christians reach different conclusions about what is acceptable. What happens when well-intentioned Christians reach different conclusions about what behaviors are acceptable? And what I hope that you're going to see as we walk through this text together is that Paul is inviting us not to just agree to disagree. Or there's this, you know, there's this big, people love to talk about tolerance, right? Paul is not even calling us to tolerance. He's not calling us just to tolerate one another. But what Paul is doing in this text is he's giving us an invitation to act according to our love for God and our love for one another. And he's going to show us that that love is deeper than you could ever imagine. He's going to show us that the love of God and the concern for fellow believers should be the determining factors in our actions. The love of God and concern for fellow believers should be the determining factors in our actions. So, like I said, Paul is shifting focus here. He's been, now Paul's been addressing, the, the Corinthians have written a letter to Paul, and he's sort of going down the laundry list of stuff that they're writing to him about. And so every time you see this phrase, now concerning, He's kind of changing topics, right? And so we saw now concerning the betrothed. And uh, a little bit earlier, we saw now concerning uh, the matters about which you wrote. And he talks about the body. And so now he's coming to a new topic. And he says, now concerning food offered to idols. And, and so we need, to, we need to sit a little bit in the cultural context of this letter before we can really dive into what Paul is going to say. Because this is confusing to us. This is not an issue that we have to deal with 
uh, in the modern day. And so we have to really understand Corinth and what was going on in the Corinthian church before we can really dive into what Paul is saying here. So uh, one thing I want you to know about Corinth that's really important is Corinth was a very diverse city. Uh, it was very diverse, very culturally diverse, racially diverse, and religiously diverse. And there were two really notable uh, centers of religious action in Corinth. And there were two temples. There was a temple of Apollo, which is part of it is still standing. You can go and visit the temple of Apollo in Corinth. And then there was a temple of Aphrodite, which we referenced some stuff that was going on there a little bit earlier. Uh, it was just a few miles away outside of the city of Corinth. But then, in addition to both of those temples, there were these, like, cults and, like, mystery religions. And, like, the, all these people were kind of running around meeting in secret. And, like, they had all these, like, secret rituals they would do to induct you. And it was kind of weird. But it was a very diverse religious city. They were constantly thinking about religion. And this is really important, is that religion now, in the 21st century, we think of it sometimes as just one part of our life. Like we think of it as, you know, Sunday morning or Wednesday night or Sunday and Wednesday night or whatever it is, right? But that was not how they viewed religion or worship in the first century. It was every day at the temple. When there were social gatherings, they would be at this temple of Apollo. If there was some sort of like city meeting or banquet or feast or party, they would go to the temple to, to have these, these like civic events. And so the, the temple of Apollo, the temple of Aphrodite, and these religious kind of mystery cults were ingrained in their DNA in Corinth. And so that meant that any, now some of you like carnivores in the room, this is going to be a difficult one for you, but any meat that was found in Corinth, like most of the meat was being sold by non-Christians. And what that meant was they would take the animal to the temple of Apollo and they would go through this religious ritual and they would usually like burn the intestines and then they would take the rest of it, whatever was remaining, to the market and they would sell it. Which means that any meat in the city, most of the meat in the city had been, had been ritually cleansed and sacrificed and blessed to the glory of Apollo or Aphrodite or Zeus or whatever god you worshipped. And so there was this ethical dilemma in the church and they're wondering, should we eat meat if it's been sacrificed to false gods? Should we eat the meat that has been blessed to the glory of Aphrodite or blessed to the glory of Apollo? And now some of you are kind of like, just like, what's the big deal? Like, shaking your heads. Like, what, what's going on? It's like, it's not a big deal. But I want to, here, here's, here's an example. Uh, I'm going to try to modernize this for you and, and see if you can. Now, some of you are going to really affirm this. But this week, I met with my D group, and we go to the Breakfast Club in Lebanon. Anyone familiar with the restaurant? Yeah, yeah, it's very good. Now, I might turn some of you off here in just a second. But I love blueberry pancakes. Love blueberry pancakes. And I go there, and they have blueberry pancakes on the menu, but they're called Michigan blueberry pancakes. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I was like, I wonder if all these blueberries are from Michigan. That's where they get the blueberries. That is not the case. I read the little description below the title, right? And here's what it says. 
Start with a generous portion of whole blueberries, add them to our delicious buttermilk pancakes, topped with butter and served with hot syrup. Everyone's like, what's the problem with that? And it says two words, go blue. And all the OSU, the Ohio State fans in the room are like, I'm never eating at that restaurant again. Eat like with, especially not this week. Like, I, I ain't, I ain't going to go give money. I ain't going to go celebrate Michigan by eating those pancakes. That ain't going to happen. So now you understand what, what the predicament that the Corinthian church is in. But now if you, can't, if you can't empathize with that, if you're not a sports ball fan or an Ohio State fan or a, or a Michigan fan, if, the, if you are a Michigan fan, then we'll pray for you. But. So imag- imagine this with me. Imagine this. You go into a new restaurant that opens here in Mainville. I don't know if I was hungry when I was writing my sermon or what. Everything's got to do with food. But you go into a new restaurant, and you notice that the owners, operators of the, uh, of the restaurant are obviously Muslim. Maybe there's a flag, or maybe the women are wearing hijabs or, or burqas. Now, I think most of us, if we saw that, would not be like, I'm out. Maybe you would be. But I think most of us would probably, would probably not be. In it. We, don't, uh, we don't usually think of the religion of the people who are making and serving our food. But what if when they brought the food to your table, they said, hey, we, we just want you to know that your meal has already been blessed to the glory of Allah. You don't have to bless your food. It has already been. We have prayed over it to the success and the glory of Allah. What would you do? You'd certainly be a little weirded out. But some of you may even say, I can't eat this. I can't be a part of something that's going to honor and glory a false god. But some of you are you're still on board, you're still okay. But then what if the check came and the receipt at the bottom said, remember, 20% of all sales will go to the completion of the mosque on Route 48. It's an ethical dilemma. Is it a sin to eat food and to pay money that you know is going to go fund the construction of a mosque? The Bible is unclear on what we should do. There's no verse we can point to that says, nope, we shouldn't do that. And that is the situation that the church in Corinth has found themselves. Some of them are saying... We should not eat the food that has been blessed to a false god. <laughs> it's not real. I mean, I wish it was the middle, like that, that Mediterranean food. Good. So you got some people that are saying, we cannot eat this food. We can't do it. And others of them are saying, we, there's no teaching that says we, we can't do it. And those idols aren't even real. They're not even real. Those gods aren't even real. Allah does not exist. So we can eat the food. So is it a sin or is it okay? And how do we mediate between those who come down on different sides of the issue? So there's two, there's two parties here. And so now we've established the context. There's two parties here. And Paul, first we're going to talk about these people that are the knowers. Paul talks about these, these people that know what's going on. 
And these are likely the leaders of the church who have written the letter uh, to Paul because Paul is like quoting them. When you see quotes in, in this letter, he's quoting a previous letter that they had sent. And so in verse 4, Paul begins to outline the position of these, these knowers, these people that know what's right and what's wrong. You see what he says? Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, this is what they said, an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And that is true. Like, what they're saying is true. False gods don't exist. Only one God exists. It is the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Christ, uh, Jesus Christ is fully God, truly God. There is no other God besides him. So they say there's no reason to worry. They're doing nothing. They're just cleaning the meat in a different way than we would probably want. And in verse 8, Paul even affirms that point of view. Paul is saying, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. Paul is saying, you guys that know, you knowers, you're right. The food has nothing to do with how we stand before God. And just like a little sidebar, that's a radical, radical statement from a former Pharisee. Like, this is a guy who really cared about what he put in his body and how it helped him relate to God. Right? He, he spent his whole life not eating bacon so that he could have unity with God. He could commend himself to God. But he's totally changed. Now he's saying food does not matter. It does not commend us to God. However, Paul front loads this part of the text, this part of the letter, with a warning. And it's a warning to these knowers, to these people that have the right theology even. He tells them, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. And then Paul gives this warning. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. See, Paul is warning these people that have got it right, these people that know what they're doing, right, that knowledge untampered by love is harmful. Knowledge untampered by love is harmful. Paul does not give a compliment to these knowers. He does not say, like, you, you really understand God. You really understand the gospel. You really understand Christian liberty. Great, great job, guys. But he gives them a warning. He says, be careful that your knowledge does not puff you up. Because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That's such a great statement. I love that sentence. But it's an especially relevant warning to those of us sitting in this room. Many of us have been reading the Bible for a long time, coming to church for a long time, going to small groups for a long time, going through Jen Wilkin or Beth Moore or whoever, Bible studies for a long time. We know our Bibles. Some of us have Bible degrees, and some of us are trying to get seminary degrees. Me. This warning is for me. We can fill ourselves up to the brim with knowledge about God. And it does a lot of good for ourselves and our self-image. But if that knowledge does not turn into a love of God and his people, then it's worthless. It is worthless. 
Paul is saying that knowledge is not enough. It's not enough. All it does, if all the knowledge of God does is build you up and make you feel good, worthless. So why is Paul giving them this warning? Why doesn't he compliment them? Why is he giving this reminder? Well, it's because of this other party in the church. So you've got the, the knowers over here. They know, they know what they should do. They know what's right from wrong. But Paul is saying, you've got to think about these other people. So look at, look at verse 7 with me. So he outlines their position, the, the knower's position, and he says this, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So there are some in this church in Corinth, and it looks to be mainly those who were formerly engaged in some sort of idol worship or worship of Apollo or Aphrodite or one of these mystery cults, which would have been most of them, right? Christianity is not the majority, it's the minority. And so most of the people that are coming to faith in Christ have been sacrificing food to idols and worshiping idols. And he says there's some of those people that eating the food defiles their conscience. And now there's a, there's a few things we got to work through about these. I'm going to call them the weak people. That's what Paul calls them. He says they have a weak conscience. So you have the knowers and you have the weak. But the first thing is when we talk about the, the weak conscience in this passage, it's actually the opposite of what we might think. Like when we think of someone being having a weak conscience today or being weak-willed today, like when we say that, we usually mean they're more prone to licentiousness, they're mo more prone to sin, they're more prone to debauchery, like whatever. Their, their conscience is weak. It does not protect them from sin. But that's not what Paul is saying. The people that Paul is referring to as weak are actually the more legalistic ones. Like, the, the knowers are actually taking the more progressive approach. They're saying, we can eat anything. Like, we have Christian freedom. They're, they're, and and, and the, the, the weak ones are taking the more conservative approach. They're, they're taking, say, no, we need to protect ourselves from what's out there. And that's opposite from what we might think. So the, the weak are actually being more strict than the knowers. What, one way that I think is helpful to think about this person who has a weak conscience is, is to think of someone who's new to the faith, is a recent convert to following Jesus, and is horribly, horribly broken over their own sin. Now that's a good thing. We want people to be convicted of their own sin, but we also want people to be secure in the, the grace and the goodness and the power of Jesus. So you can almost imagine these weak Christians, they go to the home of one of these knowers, one of these church leaders, and they're having a meal at their house, and they feel pressured from the church leader, from the knower, to eat the food that at, at the meal even though they know it's been sacrificed to idols. And so under the pressure, they, they eat it. They, they think they shouldn't, but they do it anyway. Their, their church leaders are doing it. And then on the walk home, from the walk home until the minute their head hits the pillow and they fall asleep, they can't stop thinking about, does God really forgive me? Does God really forgive me? 
They're scared that they have lost or been or escaped or something, the grace of God, because they're not secure. Their conscience is weak. They're hurt by this, what they think is sin. That's the image of someone with a weaker conscience. But we also have to understand what is the conscience? What is our conscience? Well, I'll tell you first, it's a hard word to spell. Because I had to type it many times and I failed every time. But this idea of conscience is actually all over the New Testament, particularly in the writing of Paul. But also, it's all over our pop culture, right? Like, there's all these, these movies and stuff where you, you get uh, the conscience, right? Like, uh, I, I think about Kronk with, he's got like the little angel Kronk and the little devil Kronk. And they're like arguing back and forth about, about what we should do. Uh, some of you may think of, uh, you know, a little insect you carry around in your hat. And he's like, hey, if you ever need, what to, if you ever need, need to know what to do, just give a little whistle and always let your conscience be your guide, right? Jiminy Cricket. But a more biblical view of the conscience is not this internal arguing or this external thing telling you like, hey, here's what you do or that's what to do. Instead, it's, it's part of our God-given internal mind, our internal life, and it bears witness to what we value as right or wrong. It serves as a witness to what we already know. That's what Paul says in Romans 12, or Romans 2, sorry. It's an internal warning sign that tells us through our emotions or our thoughts or whatever that what we've done is right or what we've done is wrong. But because it's internal to us, because it's built into us, they can be wrong. They are marred and broken by sin. So our consciousness consciences, I don't know, they cannot be stagnant. They have to be calibrated to the word of God. They have to be submitted to what God has already revealed to us. So they've been destroyed because of, because of uh, original sin. We are born with a broken conscience. And then as we live our life, sin can sear our conscience and change our conscience. And it can happen so much that we can't tell right from wrong anymore. Paul says that that happens to some people in, in 1 Timothy 4. And so we have to calibrate our conscience. We have to, uh, we have to you know, dial it in. It's like a, it's like a watch or, or a clock. I can't set my watch to 12 o'clock and say, oh, service is over. Ryan, wrap it up. It's 12 o'clock. It's like, I can see what time it is. There's an external reality that our watches or our clocks are revealing to us, and they can be wrong. Like this morning, I forgot to set my coffee pot when the time changed, and so it made my coffee at 5 a.m. instead of 6 a.m., and so by the time I got to it, I could chew it because it had been on the burner for so long. So it, clocks just tell us the time. It communicates an external reality, and in the same way, God has formed morality, formed ethics in a specific way in creation. And our consciences want to reflect that reality. But we have to work to submit them to the word of God. We have to work to calibrate them to what God has revealed in creation. So you actually should not listen to Jiminy Cricket when he tells us that your conscience should always be your guide. Because our consciences are broken they have to be submitted to the word of God. So you have these, these two parties. You've got the knowers 
And Paul is saying, don't be puffed up with pride, but seek to build others up in the word of God, in the love of God. And then you have these weak members, and Paul is indicating, he's saying that they have bound their conscience to something that is extra biblical, something that is outside of the Bible. They've added rules for the sake of their own conscience. So both of these parties have calibrated their consciences to God's will to the best of their abilities, and they've come out in different places. One says, we can eat it. One says, no, we can't. And so what is Paul's advice? What does Paul tell us to do? Look at verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have, who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. That's actually a really surprise. If you're reading this for the first time, that's a surprising direction for Paul to take this letter. He doesn't say, hey, weak people, get stronger. Hey, weak people, get smarter. Hey, weak people, get more biblical, get more knowledge. His charge is not to the weak. His charge is not to those who have calibrated their conscience to be more strict than the others. Paul actually gives the charge to the knowers. He says it's your job to deny yourself for the sake of the weaker brothers. Because this is really important. If you hear anything, hear this. Acting against your own conscience is always sin. Acting against your own conscience is always sin. If you think that you should not do something, you should not do it. Paul makes that abundantly clear here when he talks about the weak person. He says that by eating meat, this situation he's already outlined, there's nothing wrong with eating the meat. He has said that. But then he says the weak person is destroyed when they do it. The effects of acting against your own conscience will destroy you. And so Paul tells the knowers that when you insist upon your rights, when you insist upon your Christian liberty and you do it at the expense of the spiritual good of others, you are wrong. Even if you have the right theology, even if you have the right knowledge, if you insist on your rightness at the expense of other people, you are wrong. He says, make sure that these rights of yours does not become a stumbling block. Do not, by your actions, encourage fellow believers to sin against their consciences. Do not, by your behavior, usher greater temptation into the life of a fellow believer. Because the exercise of personal freedom, like we, we're, we're Americans, we love personal freedom. Like we, we fought a whole war over it. We love personal freedom. But personal freedom is never only personal. Personal freedom is never only personal. Any action that you take is going to have ripple effects that you cannot control. And this is not something that we should take lightly. 
Like, the words Paul is using here are really serious. He's saying those brothers are destroyed. You are wounding them. And if you do this, then you sin against Christ. So, above all things, church, above anything else, we need to be concerned with the sin of our brothers and sisters. And we should always seek to know if we are leading people or encouraging people in their sin. Because even if an action itself is not sinful, if an action itself is not sinful, it can become sinful by its toxic effects on our brothers. If one for whom Christ died is ruined and led astray, then it is sinful. So here's an example, and I can't get into like all the specifics of this example, but I, I think it's a good one. Uh, if you want to talk to me about it after, we can talk about it after. But if you are in Christ, and you are unmarried, you're not married, but you have a, a significant other, you're dating, or you're engaged even, it is a moral gray area if you should be cohabitating. The Bible does not say, don't live together before you're married. It does not say that clearly. Now, I think implications from the text point to that wisdom. I think data about, about couples that did live together before they were married and the divorce rate is, is, is compelling. But the, I can't say the Bible says because it doesn't. However, even if you are premaritally cohabitating and not having sex, you may not be sinning. But are you encouraging others in your sphere of influence to do the same thing? And does that cause them to sin against their conscience or usher them into greater temptation? Because I'll tell you, if you're living together and you're not married and you're not having sex, you're in the minority. People of the opposite gender who live together have sex, generally. And so even if you're not doing it, are you encouraging someone else that has a weaker conscience? Are you ushering them into sin? Are you causing them to sin against their own conscience? Or maybe there's a book that you love or a movie that you love or a TV show that you love, and it's really, really good. It's really good. You love it. But it may have some language or maybe it has some, some sexual content or maybe it has some, some violence. You need to evaluate if when you give that recommendation, is it going to cause a brother or a sister to sin? Is it going to, if they watch it, is it going to cause them to sin against their conscience or usher them into greater temptation? Because the issue here, the issue in chapter 8, is not primarily about our relationship with God. Like, it may be a sin or not a sin to watch something that has sexual content or violence or language in it. We don't know. That's up to the conscience of each believer. But what this is about is how we love and relate to one another. We have to think clearly, not just for ourselves and our own conscience, but for the conscience of our brothers and sisters. Paul is telling these knowers, they're saying, hey, these weaker brothers that have these weaker consciences, they're your responsibility, and you have to take on their weakness. You have to walk in their weakness so that they can walk in righteousness and in freedom before God. And so how do we live in 2023 in obedience to this text? 
no one's really eaten meat sacrificed to Apollo. And if you are, where are you getting it? Like, just curious. So how do our lives, I don't want any, but I just want to know. So how do our lives change because of this conflict in the first century in the ancient Near East? Well, I want to look at, at four different ways. So first, I want you to reflect on if you are a knower or if you are a person with a weak conscience. Recognizing yourself is the key to knowing how to respond to this text. If you are more like a knower, you may tend to flaunt your theological knowledge about God, your commitment to the church. You may be more secure in your salvation and therefore less likely to feel broken over your sin. That's just truth. But that can also lead us to be less likely to build our brothers and sisters up in love. Instead of saying, hey, I want to do this for you. I want to deny myself for you. We instead say, why don't you just do better? Why don't you just get it? The knowers could have said to those weak brothers, and probably were, why don't you just get it? Those gods are fake. Get over it. So if you tend to be a knower, and these can change upon certain situations, right? Think about how you can use the knowledge of God not to build yourself up, not to puff yourself up, but to build those others, weaker brothers, up in Christ. And if you are a weaker person, if you are in here and you're saying, I'm, I'm really constrictive on myself, even to things that are extra biblical, consider how you might calibrate your conscience more to be in line with Jesus. Think about how you can become more secure in Christ. How can you grow and strengthen your confidence in the payment that Christ has made? Second, calibrate your conscience to God's word. No matter if you're a knower, no matter if you're a weaker brother, don't be content to only let your conscience rule your morality because you will have blind spots. I have blind spots, you have blind spots. Every day, our hearts need to be calibrated to what God has revealed. Our consciences need to be calibrated to what God has made the world to be. So we don't get to do it once, Right? And then, and then, like, got it. My conscience, God's will, aligned. That's not how it works, right? It's like, you know, the time change happens twice a year. It's like this happens probably twice an hour. You've got to recalibrate your conscience to be in line with God's word. Because the knowers, like what Paul is doing in this text, is recalibrating their conscience. Showing them what they need to do. Even though they know what to do. And so be aware of where your conscience is. Know God's word and what it demands of you and what it does not demand of you. What you are free in Christian liberty to do. But also be in community so that fellow believers can speak into your life and into your conscience. We cannot accurately calibrate our hearts by ourselves. We must have God's word and we must have biblical community if we want to strengthen our weak consciences. Third, this is really important. This text is for introspection, not prescription. This text is for introspection, not prescription. And by that I mean, this text is not to be used to impose our will onto others. We are not meant to read this and think, here are all the ways that other people need to change because my conscience is actually weak in those areas. 
Like, we are not to take this text and go bonk people over the head with 1 Corinthians 8 and say, hey, you can't do that, hurts my conscience. Hey, you can't drink, hurts my conscience. Hey, you can't get a tattoo, hurts my conscience. That's not what it's calling us to do. Instead, we're not to go look around at all these other people and say, look at all the things you guys are doing to impose things on my conscience. But instead, we're supposed to consider what might we be doing that is causing others to sin, that is causing others to stumble. How can we be introspective about how we can love and build up our brothers and sisters? Now, if you are really struggling with something and you need a brother to stop doing something to help you out, you can tell them in earnestness, right? Not in uh, seeking to control them or even what you think is right or what offends you, right? You don't get to come at it from a position of the knower. Hey, I know what is right, and so you need to not do it because it offends my conscience. Instead, you come to them as the weaker brother and say, hey, I'm really struggling in this, and I need your help. Would you do this for me? So it's for introspection, not prescription to others. And lastly, Paul comes to this final conclusion at the end. He says, I will never eat meat lest it make my brother stumble. I will never eat meat lest it makes my brother stumble. And I think Paul ends it this way to make us ask ourselves a question. What am I willing to give up for my brother? We should all be thinking this. What am I willing to give up for my brother? What would you be willing or unwilling to give up? Could you give up the slot machines at the casino? Could you put down the, the liquor bottle or the beer bottle? Could you turn the channel on that show you really like? Could you quit playing that game that you think is the best game in the world? Think about those things that you hold dear, those things that you hold close. Would you be willing to give that up for the sake of your brother? That's the question we have to walk away with from this text. And it's an encouraging question because I think you can give that thing up. I think I can give that thing I love up. And I think Paul thinks that the knowers in the Corinthian church can give it up. Because if you caught it, in verse 11, Paul just slips in a little gospel reminder. He just slips in a little reminder on how you can do this. In verse 11, he says, the weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Paul is reminding them, it's not a big deal for you to give up meat for the sake of your brother because Jesus gave up everything for them. He's giving us a reminder that we can imitate Christ. We are invited to imitate and act and be like Jesus, to lay down our rights, to lay down our liberties, to lay down our, our whatever it may be, those things we hold dear for the sake of our brothers. We can, by the grace of God, by the grace of his spirit, the power of his spirit, we can stop flaunting our own knowledge and our own rights over one another, and we can instead build one another up in love. We can take a weaker brother or a weaker sister, and we can honor them. We can encourage them. We can say, I love that you are seeking to honor Christ in all that you do, and I'm sorry that I've impeded on that. I'm sorry that I've been 
eating the meat that has been sacrificed to idols. I'm sorry for doing X, Y, or Z that has ushered you into greater temptation. Will you forgive me? See, Paul sought out to answer the question, what happens when well-intentioned Christians reach different conclusions about what's acceptable? It's not agree to disagree. It's not tolerate your brother and get used to it. It's not even always let your conscience be your guide. The text is an invitation to live in a way that matches Jesus' self-giving, self-sacrificing love on the cross. We can come here and be brothers and sisters and worship because he has already made the way. We can pray and sing and learn from his word because he has already made the way. We can sacrifice our own personal freedom because Jesus already sacrificed everything for us. We can carry the burdens of our weaker brothers because Jesus first bore all of our burdens. We can seek to honor him and build one another up in love because Jesus showed us how to do it. He showed us that his love will always triumph over knowledge. He showed that his love will always triumph over our personal expression of rights or our personal liberties because he has showed us on the cross and by resurrecting three days later that the love of Jesus will triumph over all things. So we don't have to hold these things close. We can give up the meat. We can give up whatever it is because Jesus already gave it up for you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning keenly aware of who we are in your presence. That we are broken, we are sinful, we are weak, and yet we pretend to know it all. We pretend to know God, and when we imagine that we know something, we prove that we actually don't know anything, and that you are the one who knows all, you are the one who sees all, you are the one who loves all. And so this morning, as we respond, God, would we think and reflect and search our hearts for the ways that we may need to give up something, something we want, something we hold dear. We may have to sacrifice it for the sake of our brothers. Or God, we may be here this morning and we may think, I'm broken over my sin, God. I just never know from morning to morning, hour to hour, if you will feel close to me, if you will feel like you forgive me, if I will know the grace of Jesus because my heart is so broken over all of these things. God, this morning, would you align our conscience with yours? Would you give us brothers and sisters who would be willing to give up of themselves to image your son Jesus for our good, for our benefit, because our weak consciences need it. But most of all, God, we need your spirit. 
We need your grace. We need your forgiveness. So if there are those in here this morning who do not understand self-sacrificial love, if they do not understand what it means to honor your word and honor your will, God, I pray you would send your spirit to them now. Resurrect their hearts. Show them the ways that they have failed over and over and over again and show them that you say, I've got it. I've paid for it. Join the family. Whether you are a knower or whether you have been weak in conscience, you are welcome in my family. But God, if all that we need to do is stand and sing and glorify and honor you because all of the grace and forgiveness and knowledge that you have poured out over us, God, may we stand and sing and worship you in spirit and in truth because you are the God of all knowledge. You are the God of all love. You are the God of all things. And through all things, we're made for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you don't know Jesus, I'd love to introduce you. I'll be right down here. I'd love to talk to you about him. If you need to go uh, talk to a brother or a sister in here and say, hey, I, I need your help. I need you to stop doing this thing for me because I'm sinning. I need your help. Maybe you need to go ask for forgiveness from someone who you've been ushering into sin or you've been leading into temptation. You just say, I'm sorry. I want to be better. I invite you to do that during this time. But if you just need to stand and sing and worship the God of all knowledge, I invite you to do that as well. Let's respond.